Hello everybody and thank you for joining me for my 30 minute special, My Friend Kennedy. This is a show where we're going to talk about what happened to the 35th President of the United States of America and the man who allegedly assassinated him. Lee Harvey Oswald. JFK served as president in the height of the Cold War. During his presidency, he saw the increase of military spending in both nuclear and conventional forces. On that fateful day, November 22, 1963, the 35th president of the United States was riding in a motorcade through Dallas, Texas with his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, Texas Governor John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie Connolly. The car they were in was an open-top 1961 Lincoln Continental four-door convertible limousine. They entered Dealey Plaza at approximately 12.30 p.m. when Nellie Connolly turned to Kennedy and commented, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. And Kennedy replied, No, you certainly can't. These words would ultimately be his last. From Houston Street, their limousine made the left turn onto Elm Street en route to Stimmons Freeway. As it turned, it passed by the Texas School Book Depository, and as they continued down Elm, shots were fired. Minutes later, the president would be pronounced dead, and Lee Harvey Oswald would be arrested. Now, who is Lee Harvey Oswald, and why would he assassinate a beloved president? We're going to go through that day, hour by hour, and see exactly what happened, and then we're going to talk about what happened with Lee Harvey Oswald, and why do people think that he did not do it? I mean, he was arrested for the crime, but why do people think that Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't the man who assassinated the president, but maybe somebody else? Before we go into that day a little bit more, let's talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, where he came from, and his life growing up. Lee Harvey Oswald was born October 18, 1939 in New Orleans, Louisiana. The man didn't have the best start of life after his father passed away only two months after his birth from a massive heart attack. He was now being raised by his single mother, Marguerite Oswald, with his two half-brothers, John and Robert. The family lived in poverty and had to overcome the many struggles that come along with it. Not having a father figure was difficult for young Oswald as it seemed to have strangled his social development. The boys in the Oswald family felt as they weren't wanted in the world because his mother seemed to alienate herself from the family as she wasn't very happy. When Lee Harvey Oswald reaches the age of 12, his mother moved them to the Big Apple, New York City. They lived in a rundown, one-bedroom apartment in the Bronx. He basically had to fend for himself during these times while his mother went to work. Young Harvey didn't like school, so he tended to skip a lot and spend his days going to the zoo or even riding the subway. One of these days, he gets caught by a truant officer while skipping and ultimately ends up in a juvenile center where he receives a psychiatric evaluation. The doctor mentioned how young Lee Harvey Oswald lived in a somewhat fantasy world and might even have a personality disorder. The one thing this doctor did know was that Lee Harvey Oswald was lacking love and needed to be given attention. A social worker said that he was emotionally frozen and he didn't have a proper relationship with anybody. As he reaches his early teens, young Lee Harvey Oswald figures out his passion for socialism. He would spend his time digging through the backs of libraries for as much socialist literature he could find. At the age of 16, he writes to the Socialist Party of America trying to receive more information about their youth league and look for a branch that was near him. After a while, his mother eventually takes the family back to New Orleans where they would spend more time living in poverty. It seems that poverty deeply troubled young Lee Harvey Oswald. 
he would look around and see how the poor weren't being taken care of, and he would just sit there, taking it all in, feeding his socialist views. At the age of 16, he tries to join the army, but wouldn't be allowed because of his age. But that didn't stop Lee Harvey Oswald from memorizing all the literature he could find about the army and marines. But the real question is, why would a so-called communist even want to join the United States military? I mean, it's even stated that Lee Harvey Oswald told a friend that he wanted to kill President Eisenhower for exploiting the working class. He even gets kicked out of a friend's house one day for saying that communism was the only way of life for the working class people. It seems the reason is that he wanted to get away from his mother, or maybe it's because his father was a marine and his brothers had already joined up. At the age of 17, he is finally allowed to join the marines where he makes a few friends but most people don't really like him in his views. It's not that he wasn't mentally unstable, but he just didn't fit in with the other people. He never rised through the ranks either as he stayed as a private first class. It seems that Lee Harvey Oswald still hated authority because he picked fights with officers just to look like the real top dog around. He still read about socialism and he even taught himself Russian even though he wasn't very good at it. During his time in the Marines, he was given two different court-martials. One was for an unauthorized pistol, which he accidentally shoots himself with, and the other for fighting with another officer. He eventually gets let off in the Marines so he can go look after his sick mother, but that's when he decided that he was going to move to Russia. This man was so dedicated to communism that he wanted to go and be a communist in Russia. He loved it. He wanted to be there. That was his place. He eventually arrives in Russia and he tells everyone there in his broken Russian how much he loves the Soviet Union. He applies for citizenship but his application gets rejected. He always viewed this country as his own and being rejected deeply troubled him. He gave his heart to this country. And right before his visa expired, he cuts himself which got him sent to a psychiatric facility. He can't believe that the country he spent so much time learning about and loving would reject him like this. Eventually, he goes to the American Embassy, gets his U.S. citizenship revoked, hoping that this would show the Russian government that he wanted to be a devoted Russian citizen. The only reason he joined the Marines in the first place is because he wanted to get a view of the American imperialism firsthand. This ended up working, but the Russians are ultimately suspicious of him. They really don't trust this guy, and they have the KGB follow him and bug his apartment. While in Russia, he works as a lathe operator at an electronics firm in Minsk. He makes a reasonable wage and has an apartment that's rather nice. He still doesn't trust authority though and starts complaining about Communist Party officials getting better benefits that he thinks they shouldn't get. He comes to the realization that the politicians in Russia are just as bad as the ones in America. In January 1961, he writes in his diary that he's reconsidering his desire to live in Russia. He doesn't like his job and he has nowhere to really spend the money he makes. He eventually contacts the US Embassy and wants to return home. Before he does, he meets a 19-year-old pharmacology student named Marina Prosakova, who he marries after six weeks and has a child with. They eventually make their way back to the States where they're trying to live the American dream. After coming back to the States though, Lee Harvey Oswald becomes easily angered and enraged. This is a man who has had problems his entire life. Living in America didn't help and neither did his time living in Russia. There was nothing in the world that was making him happy and now he detests both capitalism and communism. 
He works different jobs, but he's either never really good at them or he just gets fired. He brought a Russian newspaper to one of the jobs, which made his co-workers quite angered. In March of 1963, he ends up paying $29 for a second-hand 6.5mm Connell rifle and a revolver. The family ends up moving back to New Orleans, where he starts focusing on the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He starts handing out pamphlets supporting Cuba and gets on the radio twice, but it doesn't do much for the movement. It really seemed like Lee Harvey Oswald just wanted attention for himself and didn't really care about the movement. He goes to Mexico to try to get a visa into Cuba, and he says to the Cuban officials that he's down for the cause, but the Cuban officials reject his visa because they think he'll do more harm than good. And this brings us days before the assassination of JFK. Lee Harvey Oswald is back from Mexico to his heavily pregnant wife. She's happy to have him back and it seems like he's back to his normal self. He's not easily angered and he's not as enraged anymore. She claims later in court that he was being more helpful around the house even though he was always helpful and he was showing excitement for his second son coming in the world. What's weird though is he was about to give all of that up. He finds a job working at the Texas School Book Depository and gets hired after his interview on October 16, 1963. Life is starting to turn around for Lee Harvey Oswald, but because of his left-leaning views, he ultimately ends up on the FBI's radar. Agents begin to start visiting his house, but he's never home at the times that they do. So he starts to get angered because they keep coming to his house bothering his wife. He goes to the FBI building and starts telling them to stop bothering him. Some say that he left a note that he'll blow up the FBI building and police station in Dallas. But others say that that's not what the note said at all. And rather, he said, if you have anything you want to learn about me, come talk to me directly. If you don't cease bothering my wife, I'll take action and report this to the proper authorities. Now if you ask me, this doesn't sound like the words of a potential killer. Just somebody who's tired of being bothered by the FBI. The night before the assassination, Oswald goes to bed before his wife. When she wakes up in the morning, he is gone. His wedding ring is on the dresser and $170 is sitting in his wallet. He only took $14 with him that day, which has hardly seemed enough for someone who wanted to kill the president and escape the country. After JFK is injured, police find Oswald in the second story of the depository casually drinking a coke. They proceed to let him walk on, but not long after, he is arrested after some complications at a movie theater. He is calm during the interrogation and says he's being framed and set up, but the evidence against him is overwhelming. We won't ever really know what truly happened because he was killed by Jack Ruby two days later. Now that we've talked about Lee Harvey Oswald and his life leading up to the assassination, let's talk about what happened on November 22, 1963. At 7 a.m., President John F. Kennedy is at the hotel in Texas getting ready for his day. He will give a speech outside the hotel, then give a speech to the Chamber of Commerce inside, and then leave Fort Worth for Dallas. He's going to take a motorcade through Dallas, and then give a speech at the Trademark. The Kennedys will travel with the Johnsons to Austin, and then to the Johnston Ranch for a weekend of rest. At 10 a.m., the weather starts clearing up, and advanced secret agent... Wynn Lawson has decided to take the top off the presidential limo. JFK has made it clear that he wants to be accessible to the people, so he wants to drive with the top off as much as possible and does not want secret service agents on the back of his limousine. At 10.30am, 
JFK returns to his suite in a hotel Texas and prepares to leave for Dallas. At 11.50 a.m., multiple co-workers see Oswald in the first floor of the book depository eating lunch. Simultaneously, JFK's motorcade leaves Love Field to begin the motorcade through Dallas. At 12.05 p.m., Kennedy makes his first of many stops to shake hands with people waiting to meet him, delaying the motorcade by give or take five minutes. At 12.29 p.m., the president's limo turns onto Elm Street. Then, the first shot is fired, just missing the president. At 12.30 p.m., the second shot is firing, causing Kennedy to go into a thorn burn position. That's a common neurological response to spinal damage. This third shot is fired, hitting the president in the back right side of his head, causing a portion of his head behind his right ear to blow out. Right after the third shot is fired, Sheriff Bill Decker orders Dallas police officers to the railroad tracks behind the fence on the grassy knoll. As this is going on, Oswald gets a Coca-Cola from the soda machine in the book depository and starts walking out of the building after being stopped briefly by Dallas police officer Marion Baker. Oswald walks past NBC's Robert McNeil, who is looking for a phone to call in the shooting. At 12.35 p.m., the presidential limo arrives at Parkland Memorial Hospital, where the president is suffering from a gunshot wound and is admitted and brought to Trauma Room 1. Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman, who is in charge in Dallas, calls the head of Secret Service Jerry Ben to report that JFK has been hit. The doctor seeing him enters and notes that there's a large wound on the back of the president's head, as well as a small hole in his throat. At 12.45 p.m., Oswald gets onto a bus seven blocks from the Texas School Book Depository, but the bus isn't moving much because of the traffic in Dealey Plaza. Shortly after boarding, he gets off and gets into a cab, which takes him back to his boarding house where he changed and gets his pistol. At 12.57, John F. Kennedy is officially pronounced dead. At 1.40 p.m., Oswald runs into a movie theater that is playing the film War as Hell. He is sneaking in, and police starts to search the theater. The lights are raised, and the officer spots Oswald in the seats. After some commotion, Oswald punches the officer in the eye, and the officer punches him back, giving him a black eye. By 2.07, Oswald has arrived at the homicide and robbery office on the third floor of City Hall. When asked if he wanted to hide his face from reporters, he responds, Why should I? I haven't done anything to be ashamed of. By 3 p.m., Oswald's first interrogation had started. The police take tests of his hands and face to determine if he has fired a gun. The test came back positive, but they had only charged him with the killing of Officer Tippett. He has not been charged with the killing of the president quite yet. By 4 p.m. that day, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called to tell them that they have the man. Oswald waits for his first lineup. While waiting, he is searched and five bullet cartridges are found in his pocket. Jack Ruby, the owner of the Carousel Club, stopped by the police station for the first time. Many of the officers frequent his club, so he is familiar with a bunch of them and is able to walk around the police station freely. By 6.20 p.m., Oswald's second interrogation starts. They are still only investigating interrogating Oswald. They are still only investigating and interrogating Oswald about the shooting death of Officer Tippett. As he is taken out for a second lineup, Oswald yells to the press, I didn't shoot anyone. By 9 p.m., witness Buell Frazier has his sister come to the homicide and robbery office. They both say they saw Oswald carrying a package with him to the Texas School Book Depository. Oswald is later arrested and brought back in for questioning. After 11 p.m., under the charge of Commander J.J. Humes, Kennedy's autopsy is concluded. Dr. Humes later states that the autopsy's results were that Kennedy was killed by two shots from the rear. On November 23rd, 
Judge David Johnson rules that Oswald voluntarily and with malice of forethought killed John F. Kennedy by shooting him with a gun. At 1.35 a.m., Oswald is officially told he has been charged with Kennedy's murder. On November 24th, just two days after Oswald was accused of assassination of President John F. Kennedy, Jack Leon Ruby, the American nightclub owner, had murdered Lee Harvey Oswald. The entirety of the JFK assassination is, for more or less, just wild. I mean, everybody who was connected to JFK was actually murdered. Let's talk about that for a second. After Jack Ruby murdered Lee Harvey Oswald in broad daylight, it seems like he went into a madness himself. Tom O'Neill, an author who did a lot of work on the Manson murders, goes into detail about this. He says things seemed a little out of the ordinary. He says that right before Jack Ruby went mad, he had a meeting with a CIA agent who was a part of the MK Ultra operation in the CIA. And if you don't know about MKUltra, it's where the CIA was trying to use LSD to control people's minds. All we know is that right before Ruby was to testify, somebody named West visited him in his jail cell. No other people were present, and West said that Ruby had just gone mad, rife with paranoia. This West guy's specialty was inducing insanity in people without their awareness. That's just crazy to me. All we really know is that after Ruby murdered Oswald, strange things began to happen. As soon as they pinned him on the ground, Jack Ruby started saying, What am I doing here? Who am I? What's going on? Things of that nature. It was as if he was unaware of what he had just done. And a therapist said that he had, had gone into a fugue state. And a fugue state is like a type of amnesia or something like that where the person in the fugue state has like a mental breakdown and they don't know what they're doing or where they are. A doctor who visited Ruby before and after this West character did said that it seemed like somebody had done something to Ruby because he was not the same person that he had met before. It seemed like somebody had gave him a bunch of drugs or something to mess with his mind because like I said, nobody knows exactly what went down in that cell when West and Ruby were there together. Eventually, a Dallas jury did find Ruby guilty of murdering Oswald and sentenced him to death. Although his conviction was later appealed and he was able to be granted a new trial, he became ill in prison and died of a pulmonary embolism from lung cancer on January 3, 1967. A journalist named Bill Hunter who was famous for writing about the JFK assassination and was also one of the only people allowed to visit Oswald's apartment was murdered next. In April of 1964, Hunter was sitting at a desk in Long Beach, California police headquarters when he was shot and murdered by a fellow officer who said it was an accident. It's suspicious because Hunter apparently was still working on his JFK slash Oswald case. Another journalist who was allowed in a room with Ruby and was working on a story about JFK mysteriously died on September 21, 1964. Some people say he was strangled, but the case has never been solved. Another journalist named Dorothy Kilgoffin got to interview Ruby, and she questioned a lot of things about his case. She was against the findings of the Warren Commission and publicly stated that she thought that things were off about their rulings. On November 8, 1965, she was found dead in her apartment in Manhattan. Prior to this, she was saying that the CIA and the Mafia were working together. After JFK's assassination, she was determined to crack the case, and apparently came really close to doing so. When her body was found, they said that she died of an overdose of booze and barbiturates. The thing is, though, 
They found her in a room that she never went in, with a book in her lap and without her reading glasses, which she had to have when she was reading. Those were located in a different room, which caused even more suspicion surrounding her death. Days before dying, she gave a rough draft of her book and a bunch of notes to her friend, Florence Smith, who was the wife to the Cuban ambassador at the time. Florence Smith ended up dying the day after Dorothy from a cerebral hemorrhage at 45 years old, and that book and the notes have never been seen since. Up next was the Benedivis brothers, Edward Benedivis and Domingo Benedivis. Domingo was one of the witnesses who apparently saw Oswald kill Officer Tippett after JFK's assassination. Some say that he testified that the JFK shooter looked nothing like Lee Harvey Oswald, but all we know is that he gave a vague description that could have been anyone. His brother was shot in a tavern by a mystery person, but all this came after the Warren Commission. Even so, the other brother was murdered on February 16, 1965, creating even more controversy surrounding the JFK assassination. Another person who was apparently working with the CIA might have had a possible knowledge that the CIA had a connection to the JFK assassination. This man was named Gary Underhill, and after the assassination, he apparently said to a friend, You're going to Spain? That's the best thing to do. I have to get out of the country. This place is just too dangerous to me now. I've got to get on a boat. I'm really scared for my life. They created a patsy and set him up. They really killed the president. Now the CIA has denied that Gary Underhill ever worked with them, but it's a fact that the CIA does a good job at hiding the truth. Shortly after this whole ordeal, Gary Underhill was found dead in his house in the District of Columbia. He supposedly shot himself with an automatic pistol. He was shot behind the left ear, with the gun discovered in his left hand. But the thing is, Gary was right-handed, so that is pretty suspicious. The last person was a supposed mistress of John F. Kennedy named Mary Meyer, who was also a friend of Jackie Kennedy. She was also good friends of the wife of a high-ranking CIA agent at the time. In 1964, she was murdered, and to this day, her death remains a mystery. Her affair with the president had been a big secret, so that information only came out later. The person who killed her had to have had extensive weapons training, and the guy charged with her murder was acquitted when it went to trial. Mary always wrote in a diary, so after her death, people started looking for it, but they could never find it. Why was this woman killed? Well, it's thought that she knew too much information and she was becoming a liability. The fact so many people have died connected to the JFK assassination is definitely weird. And that's why I feel like so many conspiracy theories are formed around this. There have been so many books wrote about JFK's assassination, and there has been so many different types of conspiracy theories surrounding this. I mean, some people say that it was an accident. Then there's the Umbrella Man. There's the Coca-Cola conspiracy of one theorist. On that one, they say that the shooter Lee Harvey Oswald was a Dr. Pepper fan. And we know that is a fact because even Oswald's favorite beverage is part of the intrigue. In Conspiracy of One author Jim Moore, he sets out a theory that Oswald acted alone because after the assassination, Oswald was seen in the Texas School Book Depository drinking Coca-Cola instead of his beloved Dr. Pepper. Moore believes there could only be one explanation. He shot the president and was so nervous he accidentally chose Coca-Cola over his beloved Dr. Pepper. 
There's a theory that says that Woody Harrelson's dad was supposedly involved. Then there's one called the Better Call Saul theory. That one says that there was a police officer named Hugh McDonald who blamed the Soviets for contracting Saul, a rogue CIA agent and assassin to kill JFK. Apparently McDonald freelanced for the CIA and met Saul at the agency's headquarters. He later tracked him down to obtain a confession that Saul apparently shot JFK from a building across the street from Oswald's perch in the Texas School Book Depository. If true, did Saul conspire with Oswald? Or did two men just happen to assassinate the president at the same time? There's one called the Black Dog Man Theory. Then there was Oswald's mysterious trip to Mexico, where people think that he went there to finalize his assassination plans and plot his escape. I mean, was the CIA involved? That's a big possibility. And then there are people who say that the Illuminati are to blame. And my favorite is Aliens Organize the Hit. That one states that there's a Project Luna, a secret alien base that's on the dark side of the moon. There's a man who promoted the conspiracy theory that JFK was assassinated by a gas pressure device that aliens supplied to the driver of the presidential limo because JFK was about to expose Washington and alien collusion. Conspiracy theories or not, Lee Harvey Oswald was the man who was arrested for John F. Kennedy's assassination. And what's crazy is that he was murdered only two days after assassinating the president. But right before he died, Oswald claimed that there was a damning piece of evidence against him. And it was a photo showing Oswald holding the rifle that he killed the president with. He claims that this photo was fake. And he said that his face was superimposed onto another person's body to set him up. Now this photo's authenticity has been in question ever since. And it plays a key role in conspiracy theories surrounding JFK's death. The shadow in the photo does seem inconsistent, and Oswald's crooked stance under the weight of the rifle looks like he is about to tip over. Plus, his face doesn't look the same as it does in his mugshot. For decades, conspiracy theorists have used this image as key evidence to suggest that Oswald was framed. But decades of analysts, including recent 3D forensic analysts, have shown over and over that the photo is likely authentic. Was Oswald just a troubled person? I mean, he, he did have a troubling life. He had it hard growing up. He wasn't loved. He didn't have the attention he needed. But what's weird to think about is he, he had a wife that loved him. He had children. And it seemed like his life was turning around. So why do you just switch it up and decide to murder the president? The official explanation was that the Warren Commission's reported that the shots were fired from the 6th floor window at the southeast corner of the Texas School Book Depository and that those shots were fired by Lee Harvey Oswald, and that there is no evidence that either Lee Harvey Oswald or Jack Ruby were part of any conspiracy, domestic or foreign. And then there were other investigations, and in 1968, a panel of four doctors supported the medical conclusions of the Warren Commission. In 1975, the Rockefeller Commission found no credible evidence of any CIA involvement. And in 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations largely supported the Warren Commission, but said that there was a high probability that two gunmen fired at President Kennedy. And in 1992, a law passed by Congress meant all assassination-related records around 5 million pages were transferred to the National Archives. 
Around 88% of the records are open in full, 11% are open but with sensitive portions removed, and 1% are withheld in full. According to the 1992 law, all records must be published in full within 25 years unless the president says otherwise. So did Lee Harvey Oswald do it? I guess we'll never know. And with all these other conspiracy theories, I guess only time will tell. Thank you for joining me with my friend Kennedy, and I hope everybody has a fantastic day. I'm Ron Wilden. See you later.